Welcome, everybody, into Down the Line, the tennis show for you on Blaze Radio. I'm your host, Carson Breber, and we do have some current tennis action going on this week. We have uh, the 500 in Rotterdam, we have the New York Open, we have the Argentina Open, but today we had an opportunity to sit down with Joel Drucker and talk some tennis, and again, that is Joel Drucker, because you're about to hear me uh, pronounce the name Dole Drucker for the first time, which I believe would be uh, a unique Scandinavian pronunciation, but uh, without further ado, let's get into that interview. It was great. All right, so today we are joined on the show by Dole Drucker. He has done a bunch of broadcast work for Tennis Channel over the years. He's a longtime writer for Tennis.com and Tennis Magazine, a historian at large for the International Tennis Hall of Fame, which is an awesome title, and the author of the book Jimmy Connors Saved My Life. Joel, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Carson. It's good to be with you. Nice to talk about some tennis with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited to talk, and we will talk a bunch of tennis, but... First, I'm a little bit interested in your writing style because I think that you're a very unique writer and that a bunch of your writing about tennis includes quotes from poets and authors and a bunch of stuff outside of tennis. And Jimmy Connors Saved My Life, the book, is in a lot of ways about the intersection of tennis and life. You say that you see tennis as a lens through which you see the world. So I'd be interested in sort of understanding how you reach that perspective and how that informs everything you write. Well, you know, that may be my... Uh... I don't know, that might bring me one way or another. Yeah, maybe I see tennis too much like life and life too much like tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up playing tennis in Southern California in the 70s, and these were years when the game was booming. I mean, tennis right. in the 70s, <clears throat> Los Angeles and the world. And and I was I played a lot of tennis, and uh, but I, I, was, I, was, I enjoyed playing. I competed well, but I wasn't a significantly accomplished player, mm-hmm. however you want to put that. And I, mm-hmm. and I think tennis... Tennis, to me, is a wonderful way of kind of getting out of my head and getting into my body and mm-hmm. kind of understanding myself. And so I think I, I was a history literature major at uh, UC Berkeley, and mm-hmm. um, I never thought of writing about tennis. So the things that fueled my mind weren't writing for the college newspaper about tennis in the tennis is tennis way. Right. So tennis, to me, has always taken on a different sense, a different sense of meaning, a different sense of connection. My book about Jimmy Connors, which began as a college essay and took 22 years to bring to life, wow. was really about what the Connors and tennis meant to me as a person and how mm-hmm. it shaped my own emotional development. And I just tend to see things in this kind of metaphoric, figurative way and then literal way. So I guess you're right. When I write, I like to draw a lot of things into tennis. And part of it is also... I think we find these topics to express things about ourselves. My deal in life is that I don't always feel understood, mm-hmm. and I think I ended up drifting towards a sport that a mm-hmm. lot of people don't understand. Yeah. See, tennis isn't as easily understandable as football, baseball, basketball. Everybody knows those sports, but people mm-hmm. people are deceived by tennis. They think it's they have this nice sport and people hitting balls. And you and I know because we played Carson. Mm-hmm. This sport is um, is boxing. This sport is yeah. boxing with a net. It's chess. It's it's mano a mano, and there's this whole other vibe. And I think one of my quests when I wrote about tennis, and Jimmy Connors became my avatar for this, was mm-hmm. I want you to understand tennis in ways you never understood it before. I need you to understand my sport, mm-hmm. and that's important to me. So drawing on other concepts, analogies, metaphors, right. poetry, literature, helps bring that to life in a way different than uh, than merely just saying, okay, he hit the forehand better. Right. 
which I think that's a really fascinating perspective because I guess to a certain extent you do have to cover tennis a little bit differently because you're right, it's not something that's understood by everyone, especially in this country. So that's just always stood out to me with your writing, and I thought that that was really cool, so I'd ask you about that. But let's get into a little bit tennis of tennis. So you were at the Australian Open, correct? I was there, start to finish. So did you feel like being there for that entire time, were there any stories that you thought went under the radar that people didn't really latch on to? Or was there anyone that really stood out to you that you felt wasn't discussed all that much? the heroine of the tournament was Sophia Kennan. Because, Mm -hmm. look, on the men's side, it's great. Novak Djokovic is brilliant. But, okay, we've seen that one before. Yeah, He's brilliant. And someone to see this Sophia Kennan just burst from the pack Mm -hmm. and play such breathtaking, adventurous, High-energy, intelligent tennis was really exciting. Under the radar, you know, I never... The radar is the radar is my radar. So right. if, it's not, if it's interesting to me, I mean, I'm not, I'm not holding up a, my, my mirror to see what other people are reflecting. I'm just seeing right. what is, and I see what interests me or what I think will interest people who read. I mean, I think uh, one thing that I noticed, I, I mean, you see these different women with different playing styles. I think that's kind of neat. And mm-hmm. Ash Barty and Naomi Osaka... Coco Goff, uh, mm-hmm. Kennan. That's I think that's interesting, but I don't know. I'm not under the radar. I'm not. I'm not. You know, I'm not paying attention to the other, all the other amalgamation of stories and what's going on. The news. Right. The news. Lots of things comprise it. Right. Yeah. I think obviously Kennan was an awesome storyline, and you referenced Djokovic there for a second. So you've been covering this sport for a long time now, almost 40 years, if I'm not mistaken. How many slam finals can you think of that were as strange as that Djokovic team match? Because to me, that was one of the weirdest matches I can remember watching in a while. Absolutely right, Carson. I, you know, it's funny, and I, I covered that final and was writing about it, and we we're all mm-hmm. waiting for Novak to come to his final press conference. It's the last day, so he comes to his press conference at 2 past 2 in the morning, and that's just how it works in our world. Right. And um, we all want to ask him questions, and I asked him a question because I, I, I wanted to know this. I said, well, last year... The best word would be the zone, because he played so well in beating the Dow. Mm-hmm. So what's the word for this year? And he looked at me and he said, turbulent. Yeah, I saw and that. And he gave a description. And it was definitely had some, that is, for, it's interesting for a player who is as consistent in his ball striking and discipline as mm-hmm. Novak Djokovic, his, his matches sometimes take this magical mystery tour ride yeah. through these peaks and valleys, maybe... You know, he's like this um, barometer of consistency, I mean, the way he plays. But then at the same time, look how he, uh, his energy, he really lost his energy near the end of that second set and into the third, and it was just strange. And then he, he regained it, and that's what makes him, he's such a, such a champion, such a great player. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's one of the stranger slam finals he's ever seen, particularly given the, uh, you got the tremendous physicality of Dominic Team. If you want to look at a story about Australia, if you watched the physicality team brought to matches such as his win over Nadal and even into the final, mm-hmm. and then you watch, let's say, the great Roger Federer, who is a very smart player, but you'd be, uh, you'd be surprised how non-physical some of his tennis is compared mm-hmm. to, let's say, someone like Team. <clears throat> yeah. It doesn't mean it's worse, it's just different. Yeah, no, I mean, Team is punishing, and I think one of the things that will be lost from this match is the fact that for about the first five games, Djokovic was playing as cleanly as I can remember ever seeing him. It was aggressive tennis, and it was just dominant. And then 
you have the late second set and the third set where he just looked like a shell of himself. He looked like himself in 2017, basically, and even weirder than that. It was one of those strange matches, but also one um, I'm ambivalent about the best of five format except to the late stages of the majors. And then mm. I think it's just fantastic because it showed the whole ebb and flow of a tennis match, of how a tennis match is like a, an epic novel. <clears throat> and, excuse me, and there's this... Um, uh, you know, Joker Short, I think his his plan was to almost kind of, red, not redline himself, but dare team to try to overplay. Yeah. Say, I am bringing it, I am gunning it, I dare you to do it too, and now you're going to start missing, and I can kind of weave this spider web into it. It looked like Joker was going to just crush team yeah. in that match. And then suddenly things turned, and you hand it to team who is a quite a um, impressive tennis player. Very he, impressive. he definitely is, but it never really felt like that match was about team to me. It always felt like Djokovic was dictating either playing exceptionally well or exceptionally poorly. And I, I personally, I'm very much in favor of the best of five format for all you know all the way throughout the slams. I understand that it's not the best thing maybe to grow the sport because some people don't want to sit down and watch five hours of a sport, especially if they're not all that invested in it. I just think there's nothing like it because of what you mentioned. I mean you have such incredible ebbs and flows that you don't get within other sports because there's a time constraint. Well, but also, yeah, I mean, you, you get the, the epic flow of a, of a long match like mm-hmm. that. You get these matches sometimes where someone's up two sets to one and right. the fourth is tight and he's trying to close it as Tennis Sandgren learned the hard way against yeah. the in, that, in their match. And, yeah. uh, and then you get it going into a fifth and you get lateness. I mean, not all of them are glorious. Not all of them are great, this but is I true. think you get to these late stages of the majors and the format's got a lot going for it. Yeah. So speaking of Roger Federer, who obviously just had an incredible tournament, pulled out two remarkable wins against Millman and Sandgren, I think I would be interested in discussing a little bit of the historical context of his longevity with you here because he's now six months younger than Jimmy Connors was when he made, or about six months younger than Connors' 91 U.S. Open semifinal run, which is, of course, the all-time miracle that someone... Also, you know, Connors wasn't as perennial of a contender as Federer is, but that's part of what makes it so incredible. Federer, at 38 years old, still a top three player in the world, doing this with regularity. How much is his longevity part of his argument for him as the greatest of all time? And do you think he has maybe the greatest longevity ever at this point? I think the comparisons are Federer, Connors, and Ken Rosewall. I agree. Uh, Ken Rosewall, who, who plays in certain ways like Federer with the great footwork and balance, and all these guys, had, these three, had such good footwork, such good balance, and a certain type of uh, <clears throat> dedication and fidelity to the game mm-hmm. and to uh, mostly staying injury-free. Federer had that knee injury a few years ago, but at heart, fairly healthy throughout his career. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not, I don't know, the greatest of all time thing doesn't, uh, isn't a, I'm not that engaged by that topic yeah. to determine who the GOAT is. In fact, I think actually, talking about the GOAT, when people do that, it's like, I like the whole sport. Mm-hmm. If I like the whole sport, I don't. If I like music, I don't need to determine who the greatest rock band is of all time. There are many mm-hmm. rock bands, so let me yeah. celebrate them. Federer, though, the longevity is impressive. I mean, this guy um, is contending for majors, is playing great tennis, is pulling out some of these matches. Uh, it's very impressive. I mean, in longevity. I mean, at the same time, though, uh, it's hard to doubt that Novak won't be contending right. he's 36, 37. I mean, right. and I think these players, I mean, you just see how well they manage their bodies and their time, and you see these um, support teams they have that keep them running like a car. Yeah. I mean, 
And in fact, I think, I think when I think of players and their team, I think the real fulcrum, the centerpiece of a player's entourage is less his coach and more his trainer. The Paganini, that's the secret mm-hmm. of Federer. The guy, he keeps his body up. Ivan Lubitsch and Severin Luthi, they know things about tennis. Right. They're adding incremental value to Roger. They're adding an insight, I think, here. Mm-hmm. But this trainer guy, what does Roger know about how to keep his body healthy? That's and true. If somebody can help him do that and keep him limber and keep him healthy, then, you know, that's, that's the guy who's keeping the operating system of the hardware working. No, absolutely. And, I mean, if you look at the revolution of Novak Djokovic in 2011, it's his diet. And it's not, you know, Marion Vida can only tell him so much. I mean, these guys are tennis geniuses. I think that they understand what they're doing wrong out there. But I think you're absolutely right about that. And so with Djokovic now at 17, Rafa's at 19, Fed's at 20. Obviously, we know their greatness. Do you think that there's another era that compares? And, you know, the numbers will tell you they don't. But can you think of another era that you enjoyed this much and where there were, were such perennial greats? Well, you know, there was the brief time of the Connorsborg McEnroe. Mm-hmm. But then you're going you know, early open era, and you're going into the pros who weren't allowed to play events. Right. Like, you know, there, there were the pros like Gonzalez and Hode and Roseau and Labor. Mm-hmm. But as far as sustained excellence at major, okay, well, you guys, you could take, um, you could say Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. Yeah. Had, they were two of them, and they mm-hmm. were geniuses for the better part of a decade. Yeah. So that was a pretty rich period, too. I mean, it's interesting, though, this whole thing about dominance, and then in the, main, in the meantime, we see the women's game having a lot of players who, who are constantly at the top and winning majors. Mm-hmm. And they're all, they're each pretty interesting. You know, it's interesting how like, someone was saying to me, well, why aren't these women winning more majors again consistently? It's like, mm-hmm. well, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I think I have some notions, but are, are, you, are we invested in dominance? Do we like having dominance? I guess so. I guess that's kind of reassuring. I mean, think, yeah. sometimes, I think, sometimes I think that we like that in what the times we live in are, maybe the rest of the world is so uncertain these days that we know mm-hmm. we can count on Roger Federer or, yeah. or LeBron James or uh, Michael Jordan. Yeah. That gives us a reassurance that economics and politics don't, I suppose. Yeah. No, I, 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 what I love about the dominance is that I just like the feeling that I'm witnessing something that is so great that it's almost without parallel. And I, I totally agree with you on when you mentioned the era of, you know, pre-open era when Laver and Rosewall in particular were forced to go pro. I think that we could be having entirely different discussions as far as the tiers of greatest. And oh, sure, because they'd have different they'd have different numbers. But absolutely. And, and what you find, what I find, is people lobby for their what they wish for. I mean, there's a yeah. big point about Laver missing five years between. 62 when he won a major and turned pro, and then he turns pro, and then it's open tennis. But yeah. then what about the years Rosal missed and, and Gonzalez yeah. and all these guys? So everyone wants to bring their lobby to it. Yeah. And it, it, we don't know, and we never will know. So I, what I like to do when I think of greatness, when I talk to players, I don't, I don't ask Rod Laver uh, how he would do versus Federer. I ask Rod mm-hmm. Laver about the people he played. Because yeah. the people who, the, the, great, the ex-players, they mostly can address the people they played and the ball mm-hmm. and the energy and the yeah. competitive quality and the texture. I mean, otherwise, they're just kind of admiring it and they're probably competitors and think, well, yeah, okay, you give me one of those rackets, I guess I'd, I'd be in there, why not, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I just think that it's really incredible because I know you said you're not as fascinated by the greatest of all time discussion, but it is inevitable within sports. And if, you know, 
I mean, Rosewall has 15 pro slams, and six of those are over Laver, and that number just gets glossed over because for, you know, unfortunately because of a reality of the game of tennis at that point, they weren't able to both play against the best competition or all the best competition and profit from that. Um, well, or play the best events. That was the problem right. with tennis in the pre-opener. The, right. the best events didn't have the best players. The best players couldn't play the best events, so the game was kind of split in two, and, right. and it was just hard to generate traction for the game it almost couldn't get out of its own way and then once right. it did once it did things happened and even then even then through the 90s the surfaces were very different so we had these different spheres of influence the clay mm-hmm. with the clay the grass was the grass the grass was faster right and you had like your sampras or Gorn or krejcik mm-hmm. and then you had your clay with your thomas moosters and your Serge brugger right so so they were kind of different worlds then once you get into 02, when Wimbledon begins to slow down the surface, mm-hmm. when the clay becomes a little, a little faster, and you have 32 seeds, mm-hmm. now there's a little bit more kind of like the events are more homogenous. Yeah. So the chance to dominate more, you know, it's pretty much a, seam, a seamless path, even from Roland Garros to Wimbledon. Yeah, and the, I do think that to a certain extent, we don't really see clay quarters anymore. I don't think that there will ever be a Sergi Bergera. And again, you know, a guy that wins two Frenches and basically he never made a semi at another slam, I, mean, I don't in think. In the late 90s, like the ascent of Lexlon strings and people mm-hmm. like Weirton, right. the French ceased becoming the, the era of attrition and it became now the French is about racket head speed mm-hmm. and hitting the ball big. And then the Dow kind of brought the French to a whole other level of excellence and significance and and athleticism and no what we see now is a game i mean novak plays sort of like how agassi learned to play so the mm-hmm. world is flat and it's smaller yeah so you're not seeing you know, europeans learn one way and americans on the other we pretty much have the, the contemporary tennis game of, yeah. of kind of forceful defense like like novak plays yeah and i mean i think that that's part of what makes Djokovic, in my opinion the the best all-around player ever and it's also you know the fact that the surfaces are becoming more similar and a guy that perhaps in another era could have been maybe deemed a clay quarter and who sort of started off his career that way to a certain extent, Dominic Team obviously just had an incredible run, and we consider him part of the younger generation, but he's 26 years old. But with the big three at some point, presumably, aging out of this era, who is your favorite to sort of ta- assume oh, the role as the number one? Slam, someone emerges as this, the contender of note. I mean, yeah. remember a year ago when Tsitsipis beat Federer in Australia? Mm-hmm. And here he makes it to the semis, and then in uh, at uh, U.S. Open, Medvedev really made a major statement getting to the yeah. final and yeah. testing the devout severely. So there are a lot of people in kind of what, what do you call it, pole position on yeah. the next circle. Yeah, they're, they're keen to go, but they gotta go. They yeah, haven't done it yet. So there's yet. I mean, what was it? No one, none of those, no one other than the big three has won a major since Rorinka won the Open in '16. Mm-hmm. And so, and Rorinka, of course, is a is a late bloomer, and which, is, yeah. which is a wonderful story. But yeah, yeah I mean, was it thirty eight is the new thirty two? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if if not younger, it's ridiculous right. what they're doing. And I would be interested in seeing. I think that Medvedev is the guy to me that it seems like can beat up on the other young guys just because he basically doesn't miss and he can also serve one forty. But also, I think he has a really tough time against. Rafa and Djokovic, where he has to really generate his own offense, and they're just too good. Well, it was interesting. I saw one thing came out of Australia that I found interesting about Medvedev. Mm-hmm. Now, Owen's six and five setters. Wow. Granted, 
Now, granted, Med- I'm pretty sure that's what I saw. And granted, Medvedev will break his career between pre-summer of 19 and after. You know, he Absolutely. really entered into the major world. But I want to see, let's see how it goes. I mean, he's, you know, in the wake of that U.S. Open, it seems him. It's, yeah, it's uh, absolutely. Him. Team is a little less, team is is no longer um, lower division in yeah. this world. Team is kind of no longer quite the, a young thing, but he's not an old thing. And, right. and boy, if you, if you see this guy in person, you think he's young and he's got plenty of miles ahead of him. He's, I think he's trying to rethink his scheduling. For a while there, Yeah, I, it looked like he was over-scheduling himself, maybe because he didn't think he was going to do that well. I suspect he's going to try to recalibrate that. Yeah, I mean, one of the incredible stats about team is 2016 through 2019, he won more matches than anyone on tour in this era, but it definitely came at the cost of his health a little bit, and I think we might have seen that last year where he really struggled with the slams and he just seemed fatigued constantly. Right, so he's got a, he's probably thinking, now, okay, now that I'm entering this kind of middle-upper division period of my career, how mm-hmm. do I truly maximize? Because he's shown, I mean, he, he's... He's scarcely a clay court specialist. Yeah, I mean, he's had some definitely. Better results there. But you watched that, so I mean, to watch that match he played against Nadal. And yeah. I was at the other one at the U.S. Open in 2018, where he lost in a fifth set tiebreak to Nadal. He's he's a surface guy. He can, Absolutely. There's no surface can stop Dominic Team. Absolutely, and it doesn't make sense stylistically. I mean, his backhand's flat. He when he flattens that forehand out, it's unbelievable. So his game doesn't even lend itself to clay specifically. So uh, he's great. Well, yeah. Uh, on the other yeah. hand, if you look at Gustavo Querton's clay, mm-hmm. that's not or, or Albert Costa's clay, right? Or Gauston Gaudio's clay, right? You know, I don't know. Now we're now we're looking at a guy with. I mean, I watch team play. I think God, I don't want to think about that racket weight. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Of, of how much lumber he is wielding and how much he is swinging and I mean, it is it is an impressive sight. And, and as he pointed out. Those big three help make him better. Absolutely, you need to compete with them here. So in a way, in a way, it's kind of like that's one of the things about the big three too. They're playing so well that they keep, they keep raising the bar. Yeah, and of course, team has notably performed really well against the big three. He's got a winning record against Fed, and what is he five and eight against Rafa or somewhere around there? So he's done yeah, well against them. Yeah, he's had his licks with all those guys, and so mm-hmm. he's and he's beaten Novak twice with the French. So he's yeah. I, I, what am I supposed to say? He's knocking at the door, but you know, I don't know until. Until the next thing happens where someone uh, ascends and and takes it to team. Yeah, I think it's really interesting just thinking about some of the names you were mentioning for French. You know, the Gaudios and the Costas and Quayton, who, of course, you know, got to world number one basically off of a couple Frenches. It's fascinating how pre-Rafa, the French probably had the most unique slam winners. And now it's been one guy for, you know, 14 years. Right. The French, well, the French became... You know, I guess if we really looked at it, we'd see the evolution of the French Open as a kind of a stylistic underdog because mm-hmm. it was so much about Wilmot and the U.S. Open for years. In the meantime, the seeds of the game were being planted with the French about how to yeah. play and the, the certain type of physicality and athleticism. I mean, when, when I started going to Roland Garros in 2007 and seeing it up close, I could see, wow, no wonder these Europeans think that they're playing a certain kind of tennis that maybe the the net rushing types aren't. I mean, mm-hmm. there's such a physicality. In it. Yeah. You know, you go back to, to Team's fellow Austrian, Mooster, who in some ways is an ancestor of Nadal, stylistically. Yeah. yeah. You know, top 
spin and right. and physicality. And this is this is what a lot of contemporary tennis has become. I mean, mm-hmm. this kind of way of playing. Yeah. So before we wrap things up, I still have a couple more questions for you. We're speaking about the French here, and a young American who really made her mark last year in the French, Amanda Nisimova, you wrote a story about her pre-Australian and her her new pairing, or relatively new pairing, with her coach, Carlos Rodriguez, and I'd be interested in getting your perspective on if she's sort of being left out in this conversation about the great young Americans, because obviously, maybe deservedly so, Kennan wins a slam, Coco's 15, but I just think Anisimova could be the best of them. What are some of your thoughts on her? I think she's a wonderful player, and I think it's great to see these Americans all, they're going to push each other. You know, mm-hmm. and you got those three, and, and you have a little a little further down the ranks, but very skilled, and Katie McNally. Yeah. And then at the same time, if I'm Sloane Stevens or Madison Keys, I guess, hey, wait a second. Right. To say nothing of, of Serena, who's great. Right. Hey, wait a second. Don't, we're here, too. We're, yeah. We can play. Yeah. Um, I think, I know what you mean about Anna Sissel, because she's technically, that backhand is just, a laser. Beautiful, yeah. And I think it's just she, you know, the tragedy of her father dying last right, year. Right, And she's just kind of re-putting parts of her life together. Pairing up with Carlos Rodriguez, that's a major statement. I mean, that guy, mm-hmm. that guy doesn't mess around. Yeah. And he did great work with Justine Anna. He did great, he helped Lee Na a lot. Mm-hmm. He's got, to, it'll be interesting to see this coaching thing, that's such a, such an interesting thing how that works between the, yeah. the player, the coach, the, the coaches in the employee, how the, mm-hmm. how the how the player and the coach connect. Does the player buy into some of the coach's ideas? And mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see. We'll see with her. I think it was a little bit. She's been a little bit uh, sabbatical, yeah. given the stuff that happened in her life. So cool. I fully expect to see her in the mix again. I mean, she got absolutely to the, of the French. And she pushed around Halep. I mean, that match was really pretty incredible. And she's 18 years old right now. So, oh, she's terrific. At yeah. Least all of them, all, all these players are really interesting to see. Yeah. So before we go, one last question for you. Looking ahead to this American hardcourt swing through the French, do you have any, any names that you're looking out for, anyone that you're really going to be paying close attention you know, to? I'm a little curious on the woman's side. I'm a little curious to see how Ashley Barty um, conducts herself tennis-wise mm-hmm. on this very slow hard courts of Indian Wells and kind of the mugginess of Miami, which she won last year. Mm-hmm. And and how is the number one is kind of the hunt and how she goes. I thought in the loss she had to Kennan that even she had set points in each of the first two sets. Mm-hmm. And there's a little a little passivity, like um, you know, is she thinking that she you know her her nice mix of shots would compel people to miss? And mm-hmm. I, I hope she I hope she continues to kind of you know come to net a little continue to mix things up. I, I, she's a player I really enjoy watching play. Yeah. Really interesting. She's someone that's interesting to me. Um, I think now we see Kennan. Now Kennan is, is, you know, got a target on her because people right. want, she want to slam. So yeah. what's she going to be? I mean, mm-hmm. actually, actually, from an intrigue standpoint, way more on the woman's side because the men is kind of like the three guys and yeah. who else? Yeah. You know? Right. I mean, there isn't, there isn't a... Well, the Ben, I guess you got. We haven't talked about Alexander Zverev, who got to his first slam semi. Yeah, well done. Really impressive. So that's to see how he continues to mature. Mm-hmm. The men, I mean, I, however he behaves, I gotta watch Nick Kyrgios play tennis. No, absolutely, he is must watch. I think. One of the things to watch for with the men will be if team can catch Federer for that number three spot. It might not mean all that much, but I bet it's going to feel like it means something for him. And he, of course, won Indian Wells last year, but he doesn't actually have that many points to defend on clay where I feel, you know, he could easily win one of those thousands. Sure, he could win. He won Indian Wells last year, so 
be interesting to see how things shake from. I think, I think the one of the things, I think a consequence of this slam, these four slams era, mm-hmm. I think the rankings, they're just kind of a shifting pennant race. Yeah. It's not that big a deal, and it's so much about yeah. the slams, and yeah. how that happens in your ranking happens to go where it goes. That said, of course, for teams to reach three, pretty neat. Pretty yeah, cool. definitely. I don't, think would give, I don't think Federer will lose a minute's sleep if he's four. <laughs> I agree. I don't think Federer cares at all, but I think that would be a nice moment for team, especially breaking through outside the French for the first time in slams but already this year. Defend Indian Wells, so yeah. So and and again, um, what happened to what happened to Novak there last year? I'm trying. I, I'm trying to remember what happened to Novak at Indian, Indian Wells. Wells. I think he lost quarters. Or, I don't think he had a great tournament. No, so therefore he has nothing to send. And yeah. How is that for him? But um, yes, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And, and Nadal um, retired, didn't play for his semi with Federer, so mm-hmm. that'll be interesting. But but again, these these lesser events, these thousands, mm-hmm. they're kind of they're more and more prologues than they are things in their own right. Right. It's a little of a of a collateral damage of the ascent of the majors in a way yeah. that's different than many years ago when not all the slams were as taken as seriously. Yeah. All right. Well, Joel, thank you so much for coming on. It was really, sure. it was a pleasure to have you. Everyone can read you on tennis.com, tennis magazine. They can see you on tennis channel and it was great having you on. It was fun talking some tennis. Great having you be here with you, Carson. Thanks. All right. Thank you. All right. Special thanks to Joel Drucker for coming on and doing that with us. That was really a great conversation. I promise that we will be talking some current tennis coming up soon, but we had a chance to just have a great interview. Didn't want to pass that up. I've been Carson Brebert. This has been Down the Line, the tennis show for you on Blaze Radio. You're listening to Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com. Too much stuff on my heart right now, man. I gladly risk it all right now. life or death situation, man. Y'all, y'all, y'all...